sur la banquette d'un autobus se pavanait d'une petite puce lorsque soudain va s'asseoir sur elle un gros monsieur en bretelle. Hi Sarah. Hi Allison. So we're starting the show with this song, La Petite Puce. The oh, little, little flea, bog, the little, little flea. flea. It sounds because, so um, cute, doesn't sounds it? Sounds so cute. But yeah. um, you know, we're gonna talk about something that's not so cute, right? Bed bugs. This is when people think of France these days, they're thinking bed bugs. And apparently yeah. we're we're infested. Yeah, that's what the media is saying. Um, there are these tiny pests have been appearing in public transport and in cinemas, especially in Paris. Yeah, and this all came about after a couple of videos went viral on social media that showed bugs on the metro seats, um, also one in, in a movie theater. Yeah, one bug one on bug. a metro yeah, seat. Yeah, that was identified <laughs> as a bed bug. But um, I guess the question is, are there really more of them these days? Or are we just more aware of them? Because, mm. you know, as I'm talking to you, like, I really, my skin is starting to itch. It's it's really crazy when you think about it. Yeah, they sort of get into your head, don't yeah. they? We, it's, it's very tempting to start feeling uh, paranoid about yeah. this. Although, it, you know, it's really serious if you do end up getting bed bugs oh, at horrible. home. Nightmare situation, have to get the whole thing fumigated, costs a lot of money. Yeah. But bed bugs are part of our globalised world. Yeah. You know, people are moving around more and more. They're travelling and they end up transporting these bugs in their luggage. Yeah. Apparently, even though they can bite you in the metro or cinema, whatever, and it's certainly not pleasant, they won't necessarily stay on you at that point. They prefer to hide, you know, in the, the place where in they the were bed. nesting, <laughs> yeah, in yeah, the bed or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So so Transport Minister Clément Bonne last week went on damage control duty mm. and went on TV to try to reassure us that there have not been statistically any more bed bugs on public transit than usual. Yeah, but the media, especially the foreign media, mm. you know, they've had a field day with this. They haven't let up. There have been reports of visitors to France questioning whether they should come or whether they should leave. Don't forget the Rugby World Cup is underway here. So we've got a lot more people uh, in France than usual. Yeah, yeah. So the government really wants to limit the damage. I mean, Bonn even went on the American cable news channel CNN on Friday to repeat his reassuring message. Though in the face of this kind of paranoia, I'm not sure a minister's assurances will necessarily do the trick. Um, a few schools have shut down after finding bed bugs in classrooms. You do have to wonder, like, were they already there and no one was looking? Now we're all hyper aware of them. And so we find them everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. And the pressure is now on, of course, to get a handle on this with the Olympics coming up next year and the huge number of visitors expected. Sur le détroit de Gibraltar, il y a un jeune noir qui n'est plus esclave, qui crie comme les braves, même la mort n'est plus entrave. Il appelle au courage celles et ceux qui n'ont plus confiance. Il dit, ramons tous à la même cadence. So, Alison, we've had the retirement reform and all the protests against it. Then we had a summer break. And now the next big political prickly subject in France is immigration. Yeah, France is due to reform its immigration rules and will start doing that in the next few weeks. Yeah, Parliament will start debating a bill at the start of November. And it's a debate that's already been put off a few times because it's an extremely polarizing issue. Yeah, the right wing has made opposition to immigration really a key part of its platform. Yeah, and President Emmanuel Macron really can't ignore this because his party doesn't have a parliamentary majority. Any legislation needs the support of someone else. Usually these days, it's the right. And this is a subject that's just hard to find any middle road on. Because on the one hand, you have those who are against immigration altogether. On the other hand, you have a left that kind of wants to make it easier for undocumented immigrants to sort out their papers and, and work legally. And then there's the whole question of asylum, which then becomes a broader European issue. 
So this summer, Macron floated the idea of putting all of this to a referendum. Let the people decide what they want about immigration. Except it's not so easy. Um, Our colleague Amanda Morrow has been looking into this, and I spoke to her about the immigration bill and the idea of referendums. This bill essentially would need to achieve two almost opposite things. Sarah, first of all, uh, it needs to step up the integration process for some of the undocumented foreigners. Those are people in frontline sectors where there's a labor shortage. So think uh, construction, hospitality, the service industries. So these are these are industries where there's already people working, but undocumented. Exactly. Uh, so it needs to include those people and France needs those people, but it needs to do something else. And that is to also make deportations easier for those undesirable illegal migrants, uh, ones that perhaps have committed crimes. And not everybody agrees with either one of these things. (laughs) That's right. Left-wing lawmakers, including from Macron's own Renaissance group in Parliament, they want any future immigration policy to include what they call humanist measures to legalise these undocumented workers. Parties on the right and on the far right, they reject this. And for months now, they've been insisting that migration issues be put to a referendum. Ah, so that's where Macron gets this idea. This referendum comes from there. It's a divisive word. And uh, to, to make sense of it, I spoke to Camille Lecoz, uh, a senior policy analyst with the Migration Policy Institute Europe. And she says that it's pretty outlandish to think that an issue like immigration is something that could be solved via a referendum. A referendum, in a way, is not really doing justice to the complexity of this issue and all the different dimensions that you need to think about when you develop a migration policy. All of this issue cannot be summed up in just one question to which, you know, the public would respond yes or no. Yeah, so it's not really like a pure yes or no question, which generally that's what referendums ask. Um, It would be so easy if it were. Um, Immigration has been the source of a lot of political strife in France for a very long time. They had for at least three decades. Now, that's according to Patrick Simon. He's a demographer and a specialist in discrimination uh, who I spoke to from INED. That's the National Institute of Demographic Studies. Now, he also talked about the discussion. You might remember, Sarah, that we happened a few years back in France on national identity. Mm -hmm. And even though that was not a referendum per se, Uh, it did fuel a lot of very negative opinions about immigrants and about minorities in France. And Simon worries that this idea of a referendum on... uh, And Simon worries that this idea of a referendum on immigration would do the same thing. This uh, idea of doing a referendum is somehow fueling more opposition. It would create more, more, more problems. And I think... Putting a referendum right now on immigration without a clear information about the, the different issues at stake would, would give the voice for the most anti-immigration voices. Yeah, like the idea is if you bring it to a vote, especially putting it like a yes or no vote, you really get a very simplistic debate around it. And whoever basically yells loudest in the room gets the gets the last word. Um, These two seem to be obviously detractors of the idea of putting this of a referendum, but a referendum does seem like a pretty good democratic tool, right? Like you you put the question to people and let them vote and let people decide. Um, And there's support, right, for Macron's idea to give this power to the people. 
Yeah, well, those in favour say that this idea to simplify the rules surrounding referendums uh, is direct democracy. You know, that's a term that's been bandied around. And uh, naturally, Macron will be hoping that referendums uh, will help his minority government pass legislation without resorting to that infamous Article 49.3 of the Constitution uh, that essentially allows unpopular laws, think the pension reform, uh, to be forced through Parliament without a vote. Yeah, exactly. And definitely doesn't go over well with people. Definitely feels undemocratic. Um, but I don't think you can do but I don't think you can do referendums on just anything, right? Like there are limits in the Constitution. This means that changes to the Constitution will have to be made before Macron can even hold these referendums or uh, mm. preferendums, as they're being called. Oh, wow. Like that's an official term or is that just the way he's putting it to make it go down easier? Well, that's the term that's been bandied about in the press, preferendum. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, we have to remember as well that that these constitutional changes, they're nothing that is, is really easy to achieve. They will require support from three-fifths of a joint session of both houses of parliament. Yeah, constitutional amendments are, are notoriously difficult to make happen. Yeah, that's right. And you know, Sarah Macron's also been kind of cagey about exactly which subjects he intends to put to the people. Right. Besides this immigration, what else could it be? Referendums, of course, are tricky. Like, you never know what's going to happen of the results. Yeah, that's right, of course. And uh, Brexit in the UK is the most obvious uh, example of a curveball. Mm -hmm. You don't always get what you think is going to happen. There's also the referendum in France in 2005 that ended with, you know, a rejection of the European Constitution. People didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah, that was a shock. So, you know, why we can't say what might happen this time round, you know, given all of the obstacles, I think it's fair to say that it is going to take some time before uh, immigration will actually become the subject of a direct vote. Uh, right now, though, it does remain the subject of hot political debate. And we'll be digging into that more on the show, surely, in the coming weeks. That was Amanda Morrow. She's written on the subject, and you can find that on our website, rfienglish.com. J'ai pas la bonne combinaison, ça m'empêche d'aller plus haut. Nous restons devant nos grilles, animaux du plus vieux zoo. S'inventant des spectateurs à qui montrer nos museaux. Le plus souvent, je jouais tout seul à j'ai la feuille schizo. Fais ci ou fais ça, ne monte pas dans ce vaisseau. On t'enverra une carte postale avec un plus au verso. À la conquête d'une atmosphère qui me convienne, prenant so let's go back in time now with Jessica Phelan. Hi, Jess. Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jess. You're going to tell us, uh, Jess, about a moment in French space history. Yes, I can't wait to talk about this story. <laughs> so when I say animals in space, what do you think of? Uh, <laughs> mice, rats, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. perhaps some tinned food or animals to be <laughs> dead, dead animals. Yeah, because I'm thinking uh -huh. more like experiments. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, to be perfectly honest, it makes me think of a card my daughter received mm -hmm. a few years ago for her birthday. It's a pop-up card and there's three cats. One of them has an astronaut helmet, cats in space, two have lasers coming out of their eyes that light up oh. and there's music. <laughs> so that's what that's I think about. some card. That is, <laughs> it is intense, intense. Well, incredibly, that's not actually that far away from what I'm going to be talking about. Ah. Um, so 
This is a story about how France became the first and only country to launch a cat ah, into space. A cat. This was 60 years ago this month on the 18th of October 1963 and the cat's name was Felicette. So, okay, cat in space. Why, mm-hmm. why did this cat go into space? Great question. Well, this was right at the beginning of the space race. So in the late 1950s, the United States and the Soviet Union had managed to build rockets that could leave the Earth's atmosphere and get into orbit. And ultimately, of course, the goal was to send humans into space. But those early rockets, they, they just weren't powerful enough to carry that much weight. And it was also considered a huge risk because there were just too many unknowns to, to even consider putting a person into space. So what can you use as an experiment? animals. Here's a space historian, Kerry Doherty, to explain. The real question was, what would long-term exposure in orbit do to the human body? You know, there was a a serious and genuine concern, for example, that um, it might literally cause an astronaut to go insane. So having the animals as precursors was a, a safety mechanism. You know, they wanted to be very, very certain that it was safe to send a person into space. You know, that's where the animals came in, the monkeys, the dogs, the rabbits, the tortoises. (laughs) There's quite an imagery, actually. So the US and the Soviet Union were using monkeys and dogs. So Mm. why did France choose cats? Mm. Yeah, well, the US and the Soviet Union had much more robust rockets. Um, France's were a lot lighter and thin. Kerry Doherty compares it to a child's drawing of a rocket. If you picture a long, thin rocket with a little pointy nose, Um, they really couldn't carry much weight. So whatever animal they sent up would have to fit in that little cone at the tip. France actually started with rats, much smaller, and then they moved on to cats. And at the time, France actually used cats a lot in neurophysiological experiments. So they already had a lot of baseline data on how their brains and their nervous systems worked. All right. So I have a cat and it's hard to imagine getting him to follow instructions, much less get into a rocket (laughs) for any kind of experiment. Yes, absolutely. Um, It's kind of incredible to think about, but France had a training program for these cats. Uh, There were about 14 cats in all. They were all female. They were all chosen because they were especially calm by nature. So they trained them for about two months to sit in a small container, to go in a centrifuge and be spun around, to put up with loud noise. Um, Let me show you some pictures of this training period. um, And I want you to just describe what you're seeing. Whoa. Okay. I'm here. I'm seeing a cat. Um, like in a kind of restraining device with like like metal things around its head. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a bunch of machines here, like people in white suits with this cat's head sticking out of a restraint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've got a photograph of six cats and their little heads are just poking out of these boxes. Yeah. So only the heads and the, the boxes have got little holes on the side, it mm-hmm. would seem but they're pretty small. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, so they practice sitting in there for up to two hours at a time to kind of get them used to being in there. And if you're curious about these pictures, you can find them on our Instagram page and on our website, rfienglish.com. So the black and white cat that you can see in the picture, Mm. that is Felicet. Although at the time she was only known as Cat C341 because Mm -hmm. um, they didn't want the researchers to get too attached to her. Mm. And you can see that she's got um, electrodes implanted on the top of her head. Oh, yeah, 
see here there's like a bump on the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was surgically implanted and it was to measure her brain activity during the flight. So what was the flight like for her? How did she cope? Well, she was strapped into this little container. She had instruments measuring her heart rate, her breathing, a microphone recording the sounds that she made. Um, Kerry Doherty, the space historian, actually looked back at what the data showed and what it tells us about her experience. She was obviously distressed by, you know, the shock of, of launch, but she did cope quite well with that weightless period. Admittedly, it wasn't a very long period, but she was seemingly quite content. The, the breathing was apparently pretty good. They weren't recording any mewing from her that, you know, indicated she was upset in that period. I don't know that she would have been purring, but she doesn't appear to have been overly upset. And in itself, that's a good thing. Well, it's not only good for the cat, but it's also a useful piece of information because it's sort of saying that, you know, animals with particularly calm temperaments will obviously feel relatively comfortable in the microgravity environment. All right, so she made this flight. Did she survive? Yep, she flew for about 10 minutes in total. Then her little capsule separated from the rest of the rocket. It had a parachute. She fell back to Earth. A helicopter swooped in to retrieve her, and she was alive. But unfortunately, I have to tell you that her story does not end there. <laughs> I'm feeling the worst. It's not sounding good for Felicit. Yeah, so at the time, people didn't have MRI scanners or, or anything like that that could give us a picture of a living brain. So when they wanted to study the cat's brain, they had to cut it open. Ah. So two months after she touched down, Felicet was euthanized so that they could do an autopsy, which showed in the end that she had been perfectly healthy. Hmm. Poor Felicet. Ah, but now she has a name. Right? How'd she get that name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when the media heard about her flight, they nicknamed her Felix the Cat, after the famous cartoon. Mm -hmm. But because she was female, the French researchers changed it to Felicette. And as it happens, that is what Kerry Doherty is planning on calling her next pet cat. Now, Sarah, I'm kind of intrigued by that cat in space birthday card you mentioned, more yeah, relevant than ever. Yeah, more relevant. In fact, it has since broken the music, but I found it on YouTube. Incredible. Here it is. Space cat, it's a cat in space, celebrating you all over the place. Space cat, he's meowing in space, you love to surgically remove that smile from your face from space cat. Amazing. I mean, now just picture yourself as a four-year-old receiving this and opening it over and over and over again. <laughs> anyway, um, you can find the full story of Felicet in Jess's article on our website, rfienglish.com. Bye, Jess. Bye-bye. Sarah, quick question. Did you hesitate before you had kids? You know, I actually did. Um, I wasn't really sure I wanted them, but also wasn't able to say absolutely not and mm -hmm. rule it out, um, which I guess is why I ended up doing it um, 
um, a bit late in life. Yeah, well, me too. Mm. And that's a trend here mm. in France, having a career before starting a family. But French women also are having fewer children, and the birth rate in France has dropped to its lowest level since the end of World War II. There were 314,400 babies born in the first half of this year, and that's 7% fewer than in the same period last year. And that's now been a thing now for the last decade, this drop mm. in the number of babies born. Yeah, and it's becoming a bit of a national obsession, the concern over it, I mean, with some mm. media presenting the declining birth rate as the reflection of a declining France. The average number of children per women has now dropped to 1.8. It's still more than elsewhere in the EU. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is a baby-making country. <laughs> France likes to pride itself on having Europe's most pro-natalist policies. I guess there's like state-subsidized childcare, mm -hmm. free school from the age of three, yeah. all sorts of subsidies for clubs and activities during the school holidays. Yeah, and there's free fertility treatment. True. There's child benefits from baby number two, and that also gives you some, some decent tax breaks. You get cheaper train tickets if you've <laughs> got three kids or more. A yeah. lot has been done here to encourage women to have kids and keep on working. I mean, it's essentially uh, paying women to mm -hmm. have children, but it, that's not been enough. No, it would seem not. And some women just don't want kids mm. now, and they're no longer afraid to say so. Yeah, yeah, it's become kind of a movement, the child-free or no-kids movement started like many things do in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took a while to take off here, but mm. now it would appear that it is. The most recent survey from 2022 found that 13% of women in France over the age of 15 said that they didn't want to have kids. That's 11% more than in 2006. And among those of reproductive age, so the 18 to 49 year old bracket, one third said they didn't want kids at all. So what are the reasons why they don't want kids? Well, some of them cited things like eco-anxiety, worrying about the, the future of the planet, worrying about overpopulation, maybe the cost. But the main reason was much more individual. Around 90% said that they preferred to privilege their well-being and remain independent and have more control of their future. Hmm. I suppose you could argue that's what men have always had. You could argue that, mm. indeed, yeah. yeah. These women want to reduce their mental load, it would seem. Yeah, so these child-free women no longer see being a parent as key to fulfillment in life. Yeah, and part of France is finding that expression of feminism a bit hard to digest, especially the conservative Catholic right and the political far right. There's a lot of talk of these decadent, selfish, nihilistic women who are contributing to France's decline by rejecting traditional family values. Mm. And more generally, there is still here in France a presumption that if you can have children, you will. It's really funny because when you want to have a dog, especially people just say, oh, la la, this is a lot of responsibilities. And have you thought about it? And this is the same. I have a lot of tattoos everywhere. And... This one, for example, is a naked woman on my arm. So this is something quite special. And everybody's just saying, are you sure? And now we can remove a tattoo if we want to. So <laughs> but a child, no, you cannot. The problem is that there is a persistent idea that it's something that is just natural for every woman to want a child and something natural to know how to take care of a child. And I'm just here to say, no.
So that's Bettina Zurli. She's 31 years old. She was so sure that she didn't want children, she got sterilized, which a small but growing number of women here in France are choosing to do. She set up an Instagram account in 2019. It's called Je ne veux pas d'enfants. I don't want kids to connect with like minded people in a country where you're still looked at as a bit of a weirdo if you don't want kids. So she talked to me about her choice, her lifestyle, and the changes that she'd like to see. At the beginning, not wanting to be a mother wasn't something political for me. I just never wanted to be a mother. I never imagined myself with kids or with a normal family, let's say. Um, it's not in my DNA, I would say. I really use this sentence because this is a really strong desire that I have not to be a mom. I am also a f feminist. So I do know that uh, right now having a child, when you're a woman, it's more difficult than when you are a man because having a child till in 2023 can increase, let's say, inequalities between men and women. How important were ecological concerns in your decision? I have an intuition that many people who use this argument to say, I don't want children because of the climate crisis is more of an excuse because... Right now, it's easier to say that because the majority of the population agrees about the climate crisis. But in my case, you know, I'm vegetarian. I don't have a car. I don't buy new clothes. I, I really imply myself in trying to reduce the climate crisis. But if tomorrow there was no ecological uh, discussion, I still wouldn't want a child. And what about your family? How have they reacted? Are they supportive of your decision? For example, your parents, that they may not become grandparents via you? Actually, they don't really care. When I spoke about this topic with my mother, for example, she said, you know, I'm not really surprised regarding your, your way of life, regarding your aspiration. This is not weird for me that you say that you don't want to be a mother. And my father, he said, well, if this is what you want, I don't have anything to say about it, but I got sterilized a few months ago. And for my father, this is going too far and he doesn't understand. But we just don't speak about it. And um, I know that they don't have anything to say about the choices I make about my body. So that's fine. So you decided to get sterilized. Did you find it easy to find a doctor who was prepared to do it? Well, in my case, it's a bit different because I have an account on Instagram called I don't want kids, je ne veux pas d'enfants. And I uh, created a list of doctors a few years ago that would agree to make this operation. So it really wasn't something difficult for me, but I really know that this is not the case for everyone and that many people, especially in small cities or in places where there are not so many hospitals or doctors around, it's quite hard to find someone that would agree without judging or without saying, uh, come back when you are 35. But in fact, from the moment that you're 18 years old, you can have this operation. Some people are horrified that women are turning away from motherhood, saying this is just selfish and you're contributing to the decline of France. You know, it's going to be a poorer country if the birth rate doesn't stay high. What do you say to that? Do you think that you're not doing your bit for France? Well, I think it's really dangerous to try to take our bodies for a national project. 
And actually, the medias who use this kind of argument, um, most of the time media from the right, uh, political right wing, and it's a way to just give reasons to support a racist opinion most of the time. Because what they want to say is that there are some people who just have a lot of children, apparently. And by that, they mean uh, people coming from Africa most of the time. And we should have more kids because we need to preserve the white uh, race. So I would never, never agree uh, with this kind of argument. And I also think that this is completely normal. We created a society based on capitalism and individualism. So we cannot expect another thing from people that they just want to fulfill themselves in the individualistic ways. Also, we created a society that is really focused on one single way of having a family. So you have to be like two parents and at least two children, like a girl and a boy, and this is the perfect family. But I think it's time that we are just more creative about raising children like we did before. So for me, for example, if I want a child in five years or 10 years, I would never do it in a typical uh, couple, but I would love to raise a child with four other adults, for example, that we just uh, share the responsibility and share everything that you need to do to raise a child. And I would also think that this is really positive for the children because they will be not surrounded by two adults, but by much more. And it would be better for everyone, I think. <laughs> you think there are other ways to create links with people? Yeah, I do agree that uh, creating links between people is crucial. And this is the only way to continue our life on Earth. But I do think indeed that there are many other ways to do so and that right now we just focus on having kids. Do you look for spaces which are child-free? Not really. Actually, it's just that I don't have a lot of children around me. Most of my friends are not parents yet or don't, don't want kids. But children are humans. Like They are part of our society, so we we don't want to have uh, policies where some humans, for whatever reason, are put away. You're not in favor of stopping the human race? No, no, no. I'm really not uh, anti-natalist. I think we can do better for the children and for the parents and also for the people who don't want kids because we are still seen as weird persons and I think it really has to stop. In a nutshell, what would be the main things that you think need to change? Well, many, many different things, but uh, one idea that comes in mind right now is about the cultural representation of uh, child-free women, for example. Because right now in movies or series, I mean, cultural production that everybody is looking at, child-free women are most of the time presented are selfish or having a daddy issue or focusing too much on their career and not happy about it in the end. Uh, so I think it could be a good thing to have child-free women in uh, TV shows or movies that are just presented as uh, normal people.
We've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Vincent Pora. If you want to write to us, we're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France and on rfienglish.com. And if you like the show, please, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us. It really does help us grow the podcast and help other people find us. We'll be back in a month's time on Thursday, November the 9th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.